0: Welcome to Elise's Point Conversation Edition. I'm your host, Elise Squirrel, mental performance consultant and sport karate athlete. Join me as I talk sport karate related topics with guests inside and outside of the sport. My guest this week is Dr. Maureen Connolly. Maureen Connolly is a professor of physical education and kinesiology. To put it simply, I'm definitely going to miss something in her intro. She may be an outsider to the karate world, but my warning to you is underrate her if you dare. She's a huge powerhouse in no sport and movement, but Maureen is more than just a practitioner in this area, with sport background in gymnastics, dance and competitive bodybuilding. She is an award-winning teacher and helps everyone of every ability perform to their best. This week's topic is pedagogy, a term used to study the method and practice of teaching. Maureen's teaching and research include curriculum, stressed embodiment, dance and movement education, and Frarian approaches to teaching and learning. Maureen's also my PhD supervisor. And I am so lucky that Maureen took the time to talk to me about her experiences with teaching, training and coaching sport. Thank you for being here. Well, first of all, thank you for even participating. I know you did not have to. I mean, I feel like I take you for granted sometimes. So, No, you don't. maybe a little bit, but I'm very excited to have you on here because I really just want to have a conversation about pedagogy and sport. And I don't understand it fully. Like I'm still learning what it is, but I think more people, especially when I learn more about it and especially within physical education, they need to be more aware of it and understand what it is and the importance of it and how it resides within power structures. Yeah, yeah. You are an arm's length away from karate, which sparks my curiosity, spending a lot of time with me, um, as an outsider to the sport, which is sport karate. How do you interpret the sport? And what do you think about it and why?
1: Well, all of my information about the sport, um, I've got two PhD students, both of whom, coach and teach and compete in karate, you and Stephanie, and your forms are very different. So the first thing I guess I'd have to say is that there's a big spectrum in karate <laughs> and that, and that um, you can know one kind of form and that doesn't mean you have a clue about another kind of form, right? So, so there's there's a, a big spectrum of approaches I know that much. I know it's an ancient form of movement that's got centuries of practice and philosophy behind it. And I know that there are, that the ritual is meaningful, not simply habit based, so that the different rituals, positions, progressions, forms of engagement, they, they have meaning. They're not um, simply things to do for the sake of doing them. Um, but I don't know many of the specifics about the sport. Although I did see a video of you fighting and I was able to get a feel for the movement components, right? The balance and agility components and the, the reaction to the partner, like the relational kinds of back and forth that's necessary in a competitive context. Um, and also there's a fair bit of adapt and engage nuance, that seems to be a part of what goes on. But, but that's my, my sort of large impression of seeing the sport. Um, it's specialized, so there must be significant forms of progression and strategies for teaching to teach people these specialized skills, I would assume. Like any kind of specialized technical movement, there's got to be ways to take people at a beginner level and move them through to um, higher levels
0: but other than that I'm fairly ignorant
1: about sport karate.
0: It's very interesting because you have made some really great observations of it especially within the martial arts aspect so within like how you've been teaching me is you kind of have to like put yourself in like where your lens is what if i said my lens was like more of a sport than it was like a martial arts
1: then i guess i would have to gear the teaching components t- more towards um well i would think of my own life as a coach right cuz i coached athletes at a high level in gymnastics and that's a sport and i would think about how much time and dedication it takes to be good at a sport. All my athletes had to start at a young age and my sport wasn't, it burns people out pretty quickly. There are not a lot of 30 plus people doing competitive gymnastics, you know, taking it seriously as a sport. Right. Um, and there's, um, there's a certain amount of physical punishment associated with participating and sport at a high level. So there's not so much you expect to be injured, but you do expect a particular level of physical discomfort and distress as you're making your way through the different levels of difficulty that's in the sport, right? So I suspect that as a sport, similar things happen, but I don't think that takes away from the, the nuanced movement and the technical kind of progression that needs to happen. But thinking about it as sport, I would probably think a little more about the disciplined body, the restrictions that are placed on the body, the kind of training you have to do so that you're achieving a particular level of competence without continuing to get injured. So like initially, training is hard on the body, but that training prepares you not to be punished later you know what I mean, in the actual uh, sport competitive situations. So that's where I'd probably pivot with sport is, is the, the training component that it would take for an athlete to get ready to compete at a level of sport where that would be considered high level or that would be considered technically excellent, I suppose.
0: Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So because you aren't an insider to this karate community, which is refreshing, what is your relationship to sport and what do listeners need to know about you to confirm that you know what you're talking about? Ah, yes, that's a good question.
1: Um, well, I am a past coach at a national level, so I worked at the national level with gymnasts and had different athletes at my gymnasium who were affiliated in the rankings in the national team program. So I never had an athlete from my club make the national team, but my athletes were in the national team rankings because of their performance on the cross Canada assessments. And we placed well at provincial competitions against clubs that also had nationally ranked athletes. And I judged at a high level as well when I was still active in the sport. I haven't been active in that sport in quite some time, but but the intensity and the commitment that it took to be a coach, I was a level five coach in Canadian system because that's the level we have to be to work with national level participants. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had high technical knowledge, I had high practical knowledge, and content knowledge, all of that, that that's required. I did an enormous amount of biomechanical training to do the kind of analysis we had to do of our athletes in order to gauge their speed and strength and power. I had to prepare athletes for high-level competitions. some of whom were very good in pressure situations and some of whom were less good in pressure situations, you know, and learning compulsory routines. In my sport, there are compulsory routines and optional routines. So everyone learns the compulsory routines and then the optional routines are materials that have compulsory elements, but there's lots of um, flexibility built in so that you can customize it to the performer. And then I, I'm a personal trainer and really developed my personal training interest out of my coaching. So for all the years that I was a coach training for physical stamina and strength and power, speed, agility, flexibility, um, that kind of training is a huge part of training for an athlete in the sport that I coached. And, uh, And I've worked with high-level performers as a personal trainer. So I've worked with professional athletes as a personal trainer, um, just improving asymmetry. Um, So I've worked with kickers, for example, and kickers develop a fair bit of asymmetry on one side of their bodies. They need to train their non-dominant side so that they don't continue to have like these asymmetry injuries. So, yeah, I think that probably um, qualifies me as a high level coach and a high level trainer, but for, um, I mean, for, for sport karate or a sport that's oriented around fighting. And as I say, I've only been an observer. It seems to me that balance, agility, flexibility, strength, and power are equally necessary in athletes in sport karate as they are in, you know, the sport that I coached. So I suspect that the basic uh, ways that one would train those kind of fitness elements would probably be similar. And then the technical elements would diverge as necessary because, you know, I wouldn't have any knowledge about sport technique, although I would probably be a good analyzer of stability and weight transfer because you have to do I have had to do so much observation in the other sports and the other movement that I work with that that's looking for stability weight transfer tracking force summation of forces through a line of action knowing where the center of gravity is I suspect those kinds of technical elements would be similar in sport karate as well yeah
0: and there are like you've helped me Mm -hmm.
1: well the work on the bosu was really helpful right When I think back to my coaching days, like the apparatus and the equipment that we had to work with is very different from what we've got to work with now. I mean, we've got all these great balance-based apparatus, stability balls, BOSUs, suspension kinds of systems where you can actually hang from the ceiling and be suspended while you're trying, risky elements. We used to have spotting belts back in my day, but they certainly didn't have the the resilience and the, and the kind of 360 capabilities of a lot of our suspension stuff now. So, yeah, I think athletes now have so much more at their disposal to train different elements of their, um, fitness repertoire, like balance, especially and balance regain and, um, symmetry, agility, you know, training movement patterns, making sure that your sort of vectors and your lines of action are lined up so that your summation of forces are, you know, effective. So that when you hit someone, you're hitting them when your force is at its peak instead of after you've passed that point, right? Certainly in gymnastics, you want your takeoff to happen when your speed vectors are perfectly lined up so that when you take off, you get good height. So... And that only happens if, you know, things line up the way they're supposed to. I suspect force production in your sport is similar in terms of where your body parts are and when you're supposed to make contact and, you know, how you're supposed to generate that kind of force without losing your balance, right? So I, I suspect similar technical elements are, are
0: at play. I'm just giggling here because I've asked you a question about why. how can you convince people that you know what you're talking about. And I think that half the things that you've just said would have went over a lot of people's heads. And it's just cuz it's so like natural for you and it's just it seems so easy but like it's not. It's very yes, complicated. Major. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been looking at people moving for so many years I just take for granted that I know where to look. I know what to look for. I know how it's supposed to work. Oh yeah. Like, and I remember I worked with our university's tennis team years ago and I don't play tennis. I'm a highly unspectacular tennis player, but I understand force production, you know, and I understand force absorption and summation of forces. Right. And how important it is to be stable when you generate force, but I was able to do really good training programs for the tennis team simply because I understood, you know, the mechanics of stability and force production and force absorption, not necessarily because I knew much about tennis, but you know, the coach knows all that, right? They're the, they're the technique people, you know, so that, that wasn't my job, but it was my job to make them powerful and agile Mm -hmm. and, you know, and to think about their movement. And I could only do that by observing them and seeing, you know, where their body parts are relative to their other body parts. So, yeah, that's, I, I just take that for granted about my skill set. I've been doing it, my God, since I was 18 years old and I'm 65 now. So that's a lot of years of observing movements.
0: It's <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And it's just, it's also people, when they watch sport they don't think about that kind of stuff where it's like force of desorption or like force. Uh, yeah. They don't think about it because the athletes make it so eat, make it look yes, so easy. Exactly. They do like they,
1: they totally, it looks so natural that lots of people look at it and think, well, I could do that. Like, uh, like good performers make years of training look effortless, you know? And that's why, well, I mean, you sat in on some of my gymnastics classes at the university and you know that the students in my classes do really stupid things because the, yeah. because the moves look like they should be easy, right, when a, when a good performer does it. And someone is looking at it and they're thinking, "Well, how hard can that be?" And then they try it themselves, and it's a bit of a disaster, you know, because they haven't taken into account all of the things that go into that really good performance, right? So, yeah, absolutely, the good performers
0: make it look effortless, but it's it's not. I love talking to you about that kind yeah. of stuff. But getting back to the topic, so what is pedagogy? Uh, well, pedagogy. Typically, pedagogy,
1: uh, if you look at the root of the word, it's, it's education for the young, right, from the Latin, because the child is based in the, the PED, right, small. But it's got the larger definition of education. So pedagogy is another word to talk about teaching, the act of teaching, more likely the art of teaching, the leading out, like the word education, educare, the Latin, means to lead out so the teacher isn't there to like push stuff in the teacher is there to lead the learner out um right. you know to to lead the learning out of the learner to so the teacher and the learner work together instead of sort of the teacher and the content coming at the learner right so so the idea of pedagogy is this teacher and learner together approach the new learning experience, and the, and there's this sort of collaborative enlistment of between the teacher and the learner, right? And depending on the age of the learner, the teacher is going to have to use different techniques, skills, temperaments, attunements, attention. Very young learners who know very little about their bodies, the world around them—they're the most fun to work with because everything's an adventure, and and everything is wonderful, right? They have this sense of amazement at everything. Like when they start running and and they experience speed, it's this amazing experience, right? Watching little toddlers go from this goofy little walks thing that they do to like picking up speed and running. And then, um, you know, when they're little, the only way to stop is by running into something because their upper bodies are so much bigger than their lower bodies they can't decelerate because their little legs are pumping as hard as they can so so you got to have lots of soft surfaces around because they're going to be falling because little kids don't decelerate well you know but if I was working with you know older kids I don't have cushions all over the place for them to fall into (laughs) because they know how to slow down you know um Hopefully. hopefully yes you know So, yeah, that whole idea of like the teacher meeting the learner where the learner is and then together working in the learning experience. Right. So there's there's that all that is wrapped up in the notion of pedagogy in a way that kind of makes it a more fulsome way of thinking about teaching than only like the transmission of information. Right.
0: Yeah. Okay, so how is it different than coaching?
1: I don't think it's that much different personally. I think a good coaches usually are good teachers, good coaches, right? Um, and by that, I mean coaches who are not in abusive, oppressive, dominating, exploitative relationships with their athletes, right? Good coaches who who respect their athletes, who want to bring out their potential who recognize that all their athletes are different and that training needs to be individualized, customized. I think those kind of coaches are probably also really good teachers because they have to be, right? And they have to design progression and they have to understand the technical aspects of the skills that they're teaching so they can, you know, do the the good motor learning stuff, breaking difficult skills into smaller components, learning the components, putting them back together, recognizing what fitness components are necessary for each of these skill-based components, organizing practice so that it's, it's relevant repetition instead of meaningless repetition, feedback system so that the learner is receiving feedback on the movement that they're doing as immediately as possible to be helpful and in, in language and concepts that they can understand. So I'm not going to talk to five-year-olds about summation of forces or, you know, line of action, but I am going to talk about, you know, principles, you know, the wider your feet are, the more stable you are. Right. If you don't want to get pushed off balance, move your foot in the direction you want to go, like things like that, you know, I think sometimes with coaching, at least in my experience as a coach, one has to be a bit more directive rather than exploratory simply because of the, the time intensity issues. If I'm working with um, students in a physical education classroom and I'm doing a movement activity, let's say balance, there are lots of ways to do balance right? You can balance on one foot. You can balance on one foot and one hand. As long as you restrict the base of support and add constraints to the alignment, you've got a balance. And I can let them explore lots of different ways to do show me balances, you know, and show me balances on this apparatus and show me balances with a partner. But if I'm in a sport that requires a specific balance, like a handstand, I have to be a little more directive about how to do the balance, right? So that, that's probably the, the downside, I think, to coaching at a high level is there's, at least for me in my sport, there was less opportunity to be exploratory and more of a focus on technique that's going to be really efficient and effective, right? Whereas when I'm working as a teacher in a movement environment and I'm not getting them ready for a competitive technical outcome, then I can give them lots more room to explore. If I was going to do any differentiation, that's probably where it would be. Because um, in my classroom or gymnasium movement experiences, I still emphasize fitness (laughs) just as much. Because if you can't bear your body weight, you can't be inverted. So I have to make sure people know how to take their weight, their full body weight on their hands and arms before I let them... Attempt inversions, you know, and so I would do similar kinds of strength building activities to prepare them for inversions. Obviously, but you know, what would what would they be allowed to do as an inversion? Like that would be much broader than than I would see in a in a, a gymnast who had to be much more specific. And I suspect in in your sport, it would be similar. Like when you're working with little kids and. They're just getting into the sport and you want them to have fun. You don't want you want them to practice on both sides of their body and you want them to, you know, understand returning to a stable position and you want them to explore stability using lots of different body parts. Right. Because that's important for little kids to to do that. But then as they get older and more focused and the skills become more technical than I, sus- than I suspect in your sport, just like in mine, it, it's the exploration gets narrower, right? I think the strategies probably expand, right? In gymnastics, we don't compete with other people. We compete, you know, solo. So that competitor is isn't really, your competitor is someone who might be just having a better day than you and Sometimes there's not much you can do about that, you know, because you can't throw yourself in their path and stop them from doing a vault. <laughs> um, you know, you just have to gauge your own performance, but with a a sport where you've got an opponent, then I think the, the exploration aspects of it may come into play with strategy and decision-making and, um, you know, the best kind of strategies that work for a particular athlete and at their fitness level and their skill level, right? So I, I could see the exploration elements being developed more in strategy than maybe in technique. Yeah. Those are the big differences for me. When I'm teaching, I, I can allow learners a whole lot more exploration and lots of different ways to be right. When I'm coaching, the better the performers get, the less latitude I have there.
0: Yeah, I haven't been right for a really long time with my. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, with pedagogy, can anyone do it? I think so. I do. I think you
1: have to be committed to investing in it. I mean, they, you know, this is nonsense. Teachers are born, not made. Good teachers are born, not made. Some people probably have a sensibility that situates them a little more as a teacher or a coach um, with a certain age. I mean, I think of the people around me. All of my energy now is in adaptive physical activity. So I work with populations who typically don't get to participate in a lot of movement. Um, and I want to make sure they do and um, a lot of the professionals who work with me have preferences for young children, teenagers, adults, and, and you can really see it in their sensibility. They don't enjoy being around little children. And even though they're skilled teachers, it's not their, it's not their happy place, you know. Um, but when you see them with adults, it's their, that's, their, that's their niche, right? That's where they really shine. And then there's other people who are kind of awkward around adults, but they're great with little kids, right? Or, and then you've got other people whose temperaments suit them better with teenagers. I'm thinking of one of my other students in particular, and he's a little bit irreverent and maybe insolent sometimes. And, but he works great with teenagers. They totally connect with him, you know, because he's got that sensibility, right? Um, But I think if you want to be a good teacher and you want to improve your teaching, there's ways to do it. You have to be willing to do them. You have to be willing to learn things and practice things and unlearn some other things. You know, the unlearning is the hardest part. Respecting that every learner's experience of your teaching is going to be different from your experience of your teaching. So when I teach a lesson, it's pretty clear to me what I'm doing. But if I talk to five learners in the room, they all will experience my lesson in different ways. And they're not wrong. All of them are correct because they experienced it in their own ways. And I and I mean, coaching was just like that. <laughs> if I wanted my athletes to learn something that they were having a lot of trouble with, I always brought in a coach from another club. And that coach would tell them exactly what I was telling them, but somehow they were able to hear it from the other coach, you know, and they'd look at me like, why don't you tell us this? And I want to say to them, yeah, I guess I just want you to be terrible athletes. That's why I brought in this other coach. But, um, but sometimes that different coach connects with them in a different way, you know? So, so that unlearning is, is really important, assuming that it's clear, when it might not be, or it's clear to me, or assuming that the way I've laid out the lesson feels progressive to me, but it might feel very you know, jagged or scattered to the learners. It might not suit the learners, right? So getting to know all the learners is really important as a teacher and recognizing that how they receive the lesson is their experience, and it's a legitimate experience. A lot of teachers have to unlearn their own yes. sense of, expertise. I mean, I'm an expert in a lot of things. I'm, I'm happy to be an expert. I'm a national teaching award winner. I mean, I must be doing something right. But, but that doesn't mean all of my lessons are going to be received by all the learners in the same way. You know, so accepting that is a big deal, I think, in teaching and in coaching, because um, not all your athletes are going to receive instruction in the same way. You might have to change the way you word things or change the way you organize your training or different techniques of motivation. Some athletes like to be yelled at and some hate it, you know? So if I'm in a gymnasium and I'm working with the group who needs to be yelled at, then I can do my stern face, loud voice. And then I've got other athletes, you know, who are going to cry at the drop of a hat and you never yell at them. You just say, well, let's talk about this now and see what happened, you know? So, your soft, neutral voice. So, so all of those things are, they can be learned. They're not natural, right? All of these things can be learned. Good teaching can be learned. It can, but the willingness to learn it is, is important. You have to be willing to learn it. Yeah. You can't, I can't do to my learners what was done to me, right? I I don't think I was well taught as a child in a lot of the things that I experienced. And I don't think I was well taught as a mover, and I don't wish to repeat that, right, when I'm teaching. So I've had to analyze the way that I was taught and say what was in there that was helpful and beneficial and what was in there that I simply do not wish to repeat ever, <laughs> you know. So there's there's that piece, too. But it can be learned, good teaching, and sometimes it requires some unlearning.
0: Without embarrassing you when was it that you learned like what year did you did you learn your sport just to put a time stamp on it
1: time stamp on it um I was trained as a physical educator in the 1970s but as a mover um I was I was in school during the the 60s so I would have been in physical education class during the 60s and then in high school until about 1973 And I remember my, uh, it must have been my, yeah, when I was in ninth grade. So I would have been 14, maybe. And that would have been 1971, something like that. And we marched. That was our physical education. We marched. We had uh, a non-specialist teaching us. And every time we went to physical education, we marched. We did formation marching and we did marching. Marching. It was a completely horrific experience, right? The rhythm of it was okay, but like marching gets pretty boring when you do it every time you go to physical education, right? We did races, right? Ridiculous little relay races, physical education and relay races. We did um, these fitness tests, the flex arm hang and the push-ups and those kinds of things, which really privileged some movers over others, you know? Yeah. It was not a great experience. But that said, I love moving. Like when I was out playing with my buds in the neighborhood, we played baseball, we climbed trees, we were running, we rode bikes. Like I loved being active. Um, But I did not enjoy physical education much. And I was a varsity athlete in high school and in university. And um, I enjoyed the learning, the new skill learning and But I, it was not a good experience. And I I received a lot of bad teaching. But I had a lot of teachers who I didn't want to role model, which was good. So I remember, I remember back to my first year at university, first and second, well, my four years, thinking to myself, yeah, I won't do that. I won't do that. I won't do that. (laughs) So my little list of all the things I would not do, you know. So, yeah, that was helpful.
0: That's just like finding a silver lining in it, though. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I mean, in my first year of university, I grew up in Newfoundland, right? So I had I didn't know how to swim. And uh, we had to pass a swimming course in third year to get a physical education degree in my degree program. And so the first time I had ever been in a swimming pool in my life was in first year of university when I was 17. And I didn't know anything about swimming pools. I didn't know there was a slope. I didn't know anything. And uh, my instructor had to jump in and save me because I got on the slope, and I and I couldn't save myself. I didn't know how to swim. I didn't didn't know anything about swimming pools. And she kept throwing things at me. They were buoyant aids, right? I was supposed to grab them, but I just kept dodging them because I didn't know what the hell they were for. <laughs> I had no context at all, right? None. When I, Well, I went on to become a swimming instructor, and I taught adults like myself, terrified adults. And um, I was a good instructor of terrified adults because I understood their fear, you know. And I oriented them to the deck, and I'd walk around, you know, and I would say, hey, let's sit here and put our feet. This is a shallow end. That is the deep end. In the middle, there's a slope. Stay away from it. You know, like things that instructors who have never been afraid would never think to say to their learners, you know. So I learned a lot of things not to do during my university, my my undergraduate degree.
0: (laughs) I love that. I know that it was an experience, with swimming, but it's such a great analogy of like, you know, you don't know someone's experience. You don't. You really don't. So you can't just take something and be like, okay, I need my learner to do this, this, and this. Yeah. Because that won't work.
1: No, with some... it won't. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be creative ways to, to baseline who, who you got in front of you, right? Like activities, fun activities, exploratory activities that are safe and that aren't going to compromise people's dignity. That gives you a sense of what they can do. Before you start assuming you know what they can do, right?
0: So, through your relationship with sport, growing up in the sport system, coaching in the sport system, studying it too, and observing the sport system, how do you feel power dynamics seep into teaching?
1: I think the power dynamic seeps into teaching when obedience is the only thing you are requiring of your learner then it's a battle of wills if if the only thing i require of a learner for a learner to be successful is obedience i really think that's the most primitive form of learning and 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 it engenders defiance right um for for learners who want to explore or who don't want to do it this way or they're awkward or they don't it doesn't feel right or whatever and saying if it's so, if, if obedience requires that there's only one way to be right, then I think that, that just sets the tone for a, a power relationship right there, because the students resent it, and the teacher who needs to feel like she's controlling the students resents their resistance, right? And that's when things get ugly <laughs> in terms of sanctions, punishments, you know, embarrassment, abuse, shaming people, humiliating people, right? Because you want them to do what you want. You know, with small children, like little kids, they're desperate to please the teacher most of the time. I mean, they just want you to notice them and tell them that they're great. And, you know, and as they get older and they, you know, get more skilled or more life experience, then you have to grant them that life experience, You know, I'm not the only expert that they're going to be engaging with and they're going to push back. And instead of resenting that, you know, I need to learn from that. But that's where I think the power dynamic changes is as as athletes get exposure to more experts, they become analyzers of their own movements. They become more knowledgeable about their own bodies. They have a better gauge. They're a better gauge of their own bodies. And they, and they want that to be respected. And if all I want is obedience, then that's a nasty recipe right there. And I think trying to control all aspects of your athlete's life is an issue. I remember when kids in gymnastics got into the national stream level. Oh, man, like the constraints, like they had to give up other sports. Like if you play volleyball and you dislocate your finger you can't do bars, you can't do beam, you're out for the next two or three weeks because you had to play volleyball, right? So, so the higher up the levels go, the, the more constrained the athlete becomes. So they don't, there's already a lot of constraint in their life. They don't need a coach who also needs to control all kinds of other things, right? Like, can't do this, you can't do that, you can't go here, you can't go there, with no explanations of why you know so expecting expecting athletes to just just give me obedience unquestioned obedience no I don't think that's um that's just a recipe for disaster but I think a lot of coaches believe that athletes are simply supposed to obey and that they the coach does control all aspects of the athlete's life and that that's tricky When I took young athletes on the road, I was fairly adamant about where they could and could not go. Like if we were in a hotel together and I have other people's children, I have to keep them safe, you know? So, so there are going to be restrictions there, but within that constraint, we had a a lot of fun in the hotel. Like we, they could hang out in each other's rooms. They could, but, but they weren't allowed to like watch porn on television. They're eight, you know what I mean? So there's, there's, there's things that have to be age appropriate and the coach has to surveil that at some level, but the older the athletes get, I mean, coaching a, an adult like yourself, what right do I have to, you know, govern all kinds of departments of your life? We'd negotiate it and I would say, you know, I'm thinking you seem a little distracted and scattered. What's going on? Your, your practices haven't been very focused. Shall we talk about that? But not like, you know, you better get your work, you better get your act together, Missy, and stop doing this and this and this. Like, how is that helpful to our relationship in, in any way? It's, it's not, you know. So even small children like to be consulted. They do, you know. They And I think that once, you know, once we cross over the line into obedience is the only correct response, yeah, we're... I think that really, the relationship deteriorates then, And then it's only power and not authority. I think athletes, well, anyone, will vest authority in someone that they trust. But once you lose their trust, then all you got is power, you know, which power without authority is, it's not great. It's not good for the relationship.
0: So... One of the reasons why parents enroll their children in karate is to teach them discipline, but sometimes, and this has definitely happened in the past and maybe even in the present, where this idea of discipline, like one's control over his or her actions gets mixed up with discipline, which is like punishing the child. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about this? And what are your thoughts about this within a like pedagogical sense?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in um, a lot of the activities that I've been involved in, different forms of dance, lots of parents put their kids in dance for discipline, right? Or I think, I think at some level, they, parents believe discipline means they get better at taking orders, (laughs) but but I'm not sure that that's how, what discipline translates into in a sporting environment, right? I think in my environment, I wanted my athletes to develop self-discipline so that, you know, if we're practicing a skill and I think we, we should do continuous practice for 15 minutes and, and um, continuous correct practice for 15 minutes, then we'll take a break. Depending on how well they know themselves, some athletes need to do fewer repetitions than others. But that idea of putting in appropriate efforts to the skill that you want to develop without necessarily always having to be rewarded, that's something that I see as indicative of self-discipline, so that the athlete doesn't expect reward or praise for excellent work, uh, excellence is, is the reward in itself. And so developing a relationship with personal excellence, I think, kind of is at the heart of discipline, for me anyway, as a, as a coach. And I also think that uh, composure is a part of discipline. Being able to sense your emotional state and engage, is this helpful where my emotional state is going what do I need to do to marshal it so that I can move it in a direction that's going to be helpful for me so that kind of mindful engagement with your own emotional state and the composure that goes with that so the the composure and poise and a personal relationship with excellence I would see those things as being associated with discipline And I would say those are helpful, regardless of what you're doing—sport, an advanced degree. I mean, you're analyzing data, and it's not always joyful, or you know, it's not on top of your to-do list for the day. But but you are committed to being excellent at it, you know, and you compose yourself and you commit yourself to the task. And I think athletes who Are able to do that, are going to be better athletes. My niece is a goalie, she's a soccer goalie, and um, she knows that goalies aren't on the field. So their cardiovascular requirements are less intense than, say, the strikers or the halfbacks, right? Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, she's a team member and she knows she has to maintain her cardio. So she runs, she's on the treadmill, she does a cardio regime because. Soccer players are supposed to have good cardio, and she's committed to that. She's self-disciplined, and she doesn't need a coach saying, no, Shannon, make sure you run on the weekend. She will run because she knows it's her responsibility to be fit. I think that's discipline. Of course, you know, uh, her beep test, which she has to do two or three times a year, she prepares for her beep test. Not because she thinks she needs to be better than everyone else on the team, but this is a requirement of an athlete, and she wants to, you know, have that level of her fitness at a level where it should be for someone in her sport. So I think that discipline, when she's got penalty shots coming at her, she's very composed. She never panics. And it elevates her game. She can rely on her own composure, right? Right. When things are going bad in a game, she doesn't lose her temper on her teammates. She maintains composure. she's poised. you know, I think all of that is indicative of discipline. and I think coaches can engender that if they themselves have some discipline. <laughs> it's, it's like we say in you know adapted adaptive environments, an escalated adult cannot deescalate an escalated child, right If you want to. Deescalate the situation you yourself have to be able to have composure right so i think that's important too like right? coaches need to model composure and excellence and focus if practice starts at nine it starts at nine it doesn't start 10 after you know if if there's paperwork to be done or reports to be done or stuff that maybe the coach doesn't enjoy but that's required it's done because that's responsibility of the coach you know so I mean that's what discipline means to me um, as a coach and a teacher right I'm I've been teaching a lot of years you know and I still have a lesson plan to every class I go into I don't ever wing it ever my learners deserve a plan now if the plan goes sideways I've got you know Uh, almost 50 years of experience teaching to adapt and, you know, on the fly if I need to. But I would never go into a situation without a plan, ever. I think that's discipline. And my, my learners know it. My athletes knew it. We never had an unstructured practice. We had a plan. They all knew what the plan was. They all knew why they were doing what they were doing. They weren't afraid to ask questions you know, so, so that's a part of discipline too, I think, you know, I don't necessarily think your coach has to be an amazing athlete, I used to say to my athletes all the time, we can spend all our time making me into a great athlete, or we can spend all our time making you into a great athlete, what shall we do, you know, you're not doing handstands, you're not doing walkovers, no, no, I'm not, but I'm not competing, and you are, right, so, we would have these conversations. Well, we can spend all our time today making me into a great athlete, if that's what you'd like. No, they would like to be the great athletes, you know? So so there's got to be some back and forth there, you know? I don't need to be an elite performer anymore to be a good coach, you know? And truth be told, I wasn't much of a gymnast, but I was a very good coach.
0: My other, like, kind of side to that was, so I think those definitions of discipline, like I, they resonate with me too, very much. But with this opposing definition of discipline, like almost militarized. Yeah. Following like order. How, chain of command. Yeah. How is this idea enabled, especially within like this folklore of the martial arts?
1: Well, I think sport in general brings that sort of warrior mentality um, and, and, you know, the whole alignment. Well, and sports, well, physical training and military service have been aligned for centuries. So that's not exactly a big surprise that you would see those sort of more militaristic chain of commands, my way or the highway kind of engagements because of the physical requirements that used to be considered essential for the service of one's country. Right. So, and I think sport, in a lot of ways, especially with high level events like Olympics and world championships, the, the representation of one's country kind of aligns it with this whole military service orientation, rightly or wrongly. And, uh, and I think there's this idea of obedience that's really important, respecting the kind of chain of command and the, the coaches, like the general, as it were. And like unquestioned obedience is, is a big deal. And I think at some level, maybe that's desired. At a, a certain level of the sport, I want my athletes to be safe. So I'd like them to be engaging in safe practices. And we don't do a lot of negotiation about that. Um, But if I don't trust their intuition in the moment, like if I have a good fighter and they shine when they're problem solving in the moment, why would I say to them, why would I choreograph their fight and say, you must do it in this way in this order. Right. Um, But I think that idea that there's a structured sort of set of ordered movements or ordered behaviors that fall in line and will always be correct regardless of the circumstances. I don't think that was ever the case, but I think there's a certain appeal to believing in that kind of a certainty. You know, I think having certainty has a lot of appeal. The lack of ambiguity is appealing to lots of people. Um, but yourself as an athlete at a high level, you know, yourself, even when you have studied your opponent's, and you have some idea of what to expect if you can't adapt with the conditions you know or if you can't adapt to contingency you're not much of a competitor if we if you if you can only play on a dry field and you can't do anything when the field is wet you're not much of a competitor <laughs> you know so it's so the ability to change with the conditions is also really important and i think that part can remain fairly underdeveloped if the only thing you're doing is it's going to be done this way regardless of the circumstances so i think there's got to be some latitude there but i think in sport as in the military those kind of latitudes tend to be earned not bestowed right so someone has to earn their way into using their intuition or you know having latitude in a particular situation so there is a bit of there's a lot of that in sport too like you 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 earn your spurs you make your way through the ranks as it were in the same way that you see in military service but but I mean in recent years military service is and statehood and nationhood and the whole relationship of military service to nation building and and nationalism it's very different from even 10 years ago in terms of what counts as service in you know, military service in the service of warfare or strategic imperialist kind of goals. Right. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily bring out the best in the person, just like sometimes sport is not necessarily a good developer of character. <laughs> sometimes if winning is the only thing that matters and you don't get caught cheating, then I don't know that that's a great, development of character so so it's it's fuzzy like the 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 um eyes on the prize mentality and who cares how you get there that's um i'm not sure that's a great mentality although certainly i think it's valued in some sport just like it's valued in some military motivations as well
0: okay I'm going to backtrack to my previous question a little because I must make it sound like there aren't great teachers in my sport. There are great teachers in my sport. There are I'm great- I'm sure
1: there must be, yeah. Yeah,
0: and some come by it accidentally, like that whole you're born versus, you know, you can learn it and some work at it. How do you know you're a good teacher? You know, you can't work your way up In a system or in your spurs or whatever. But how do you know you're a good teacher?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I suppose, well, you see, you see your teaching in your learners, right? Are your, are, how many of your learners are achieving their goals, regardless of whether they're just like you or not, right? So, It's easy to teach a learner who's just like me, right? Someone who, I mean, I was never very talented, but I could outwork just about anybody. And so I like to see that. I like to see that work ethic in an athlete. You know, when we were testing national talent and looking for girls, you know, to get in the national stream of training, we used to have them hold on to a bar with their hands and their feet off the floor and they had to get themselves up on the bar so that the bar was on their hips and the girl who could do like one motion and get herself up there had awesome strength in her shoulders you want her because she's got this awesome natural strength but the little gal who hangs on that bar and she's got blisters on her hands and she's tenacious and she after 15 minutes she gets to the top you want her too Because she's tenacious, you know, she doesn't have natural strength, but man, is she going to work? Right. So so there's this sense of many different kinds of learners can succeed with your teaching. Uh, I mean, for me, that's that's the indication that I'm a reasonably good teacher because I reach many different kinds of learners, levels of learners, skill levels, attention levels, motivation levels, I am able to see them make their way towards success as they define it in relation to my teaching. That gives me feedback that I'm a a good teacher. I see it in my learners. And I saw it in my athletes, like all of my athletes were different. So, you know, um, being able to adapt like long, slender athletes need to train strength differently than short little spark plugs. <laughs> you know their the training has to be different. yeah have I have to adapt to the body and the personality of my athlete and and the same with my learners. So when I see a, a broad heterogeneity succeeding based on their own, sense of success then then that's my gauge for my teaching that's how I know I'm a good teacher
0: so because we've established that it can be learned it's not something that you're born can be learned yes are there resources that can help make someone a better teacher
1: oh absolutely
0: absolutely certainly
1: if you're a coach there are all kinds of certifications you can take as a coach in many ways the coaching accreditation is a little more rigorous than teaching accreditation because you you can earn your teaching certificate and you don't need to do another thing ever. You can rest on that, you know? Whereas in coaching, if you don't stay with what's current, you won't be coaching very long. <laughs> you know, the the sport will move past you and the athletes will move past you. Whereas in teaching it's it's possible to kind of not improve, right? Beyond your initial certification or accreditation. But I think the research on teaching in the past, say, 30 years has exploded. And there are so many resources on developing different teaching strategies in terms of online strategies, small group strategies, large group strategies strategies pitched at different kinds of learners strategies that are culturally sensitized so that you're not assuming all cultures are like your own strategies that are more in tune with tech savvy learners like flip flipped classrooms strategies that allow for more self-directedness in some learners and more accountability in other learners there's some really good research on. learning in post-secondary institutions, um, superficial learning, strategic learning, and deep learning, and how teachers can engender deep learning as opposed to simply superficial engagements with subject matter. There's lots of good research on assessment so that you're, you're gauging, you're, you're linking assessment to particular learning outcomes and then you're linking that to the type of experiences you put in your teaching. So, like, since the 50s, when curriculum was this box, really, like, so much has changed in terms of how we study curriculum, what we believe curriculum to be, how we study assessment, what we believe the role of assessment is, how we studied feedback, the way we deliver feedback, the timeliness of feedback, the relevance of feedback. So, there's there's so many areas of teaching that you can now read in, that you can do workshops on. You can look at master teachers deploying some of these strategies and see what they're doing. You can attend workshops. You can attend retreats. So there's there's all kinds of opportunities now to improve your teaching. You know, I'm a reader, so the first place I would go is reading. But there are lots of online tools for supporting teaching, there is a micro, there's a 24-hour instructional skills workshop that can move you from no knowledge to at least basic competence in a weekend, 24 hours, and then ways to work your way through that system so that you can continue to improve your skills. So I would say Yeah, there's the the resources are there. If you're a brand new teacher or if you've been forced into teaching and you've never done it before and you know nothing, take an instructional skills workshop. It's the best 24 hours you'll ever invest because you will learn about how learners experience your teaching and you can adapt, you know, and you can do micro teaching and be videotaped and see what you look like and sound like. There's there's an experience, you know, so. All of these tools are available now that um, people can upgrade their, their teaching. They can focus on what are called signature pedagogies so that something that appeals to you, you can really develop that in a more specialized way. All of that, all of those things are really helpful. And, and yeah, like if, if all you have is the search engine and you Google, professional development slash teaching, you will find lots of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're more kind of systematic and organized, look at the instructional skills workshop, look at assessment-based workshops, look at teaching retreats, look at um, the summer institutes that are available at almost every university in the country for improvement of teaching. So all of those things are at our disposal now. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse to be a bad teacher. It's remarkable that so much of it still goes on. But, you know, first you have to want to be a better teacher. So,
0: so um, you have a poster on your wall in your office that says, meaning well is no excuse. And I love that. Yeah. How does that align with your pedagogy and overall way of being?
1: Yeah yeah that's a great pray. It's a great little comment, isn't it Meaning well is no excuse. Well, I mean, meaning well is no excuse for doing like <coughs> shitty work. Pardon my language right but but if you have good intentions and you say you care about the learner or you say you care about your athlete, you believe you have all these good intentions, but that doesn't ever translate into a change of behavior or different action or upgrading, or making a switch from something that's not working to something that is. That might be uncomfortable for me to do, but it would be better for my learner. My good intentions cannot take the place of good actions, and they're no excuse for bad actions. So, you know, my my good intentions without good follow-up are no excuse. Um, And saying, well, I meant well, okay, that's great. But you know, here was an injury and here's someone who had a terrible experience. And here's someone who's now a practitioner who missed something really important because you couldn't be bothered to prepare or whatever. So that idea of meaning well is no excuse means I have to go beyond simply saying that I care or saying that I'm motivated. I have to I really have to move that into the action step. I have to make change. Another one that I don't have on my office wall that I like to is nothing changes if nothing changes. So if I keep doing things the same way, nothing will change. If I want things to change, I have to change something. Nothing changes if nothing changes. So that's really important, too. I line that right up next to Meaning Well is No Excuse.
0: (laughs) That's a great one. I love that one.
1: It is a good one. It is a good one. Yeah, and I've I've changed lots of things in my teaching. When I moved to teaching online, it really improved my face-to-face teaching because I had to take other things into account. And I learned things about my learners that I didn't know before when all I had was the face-to-face information, right? So, Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and, um, and in my um, adaptive settings, if I don't learn about the bodies of my participants and I just assume I can transfer a knowledge that applies to someone with cerebral palsy and it's going to work with someone with multiple sclerosis, it's not. Like, I have to do my homework. I have to be willing to keep doing a lot of learning and stay current with what's going on in the research so I'm not putting my people at risk, putting my participants at risk based in my ignorance, right? I can't mm-hmm. afford it. Like the populations that I work with require that higher standard. I would say that with athletes, with coaches too. Like you can't afford not to be informed about what's going on. You just can't. Yeah, so <laughs> I guess that's how it translates. More than talk, there has to be action.
0: Okay. So, um, thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. Um, I
1: enjoyed it too. I don't think you and I have had a lot of chance to talk about pedagogy or philosophy of teaching. So this has been a ton of fun for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love observing all the stuff that you do. Like, cause again, like it's not something that is that I'm learning. Like it's, it's, it's something that I have experienced. But it's not something that I am like, it's not that I'm doing my PhD on. And so I find it so fascinating. And then I'm also like, well, why didn't I know this before? Like, that hurts. That actually hurts me a lot where it's like, why didn't I know this before?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. your undergraduate training wasn't in a field that had pedagogy as its focus. It had management as its focus. It's very different.
0: And it's very different. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to add or that you were wondering about throughout the interview?
1: No, I was I really enjoyed our conversation. I totally did. And I like I love talking about pedagogy, teaching, coaching. And I think one thing I didn't mention is the idea of being reflective. Like a coach and a teacher have to practice critical self-reflection. We have to be willing to examine ourselves and our practices in ongoing ways, you know? And that's where like meaning well is no excuse. That's that's a form of reflection. Right. And nothing changes if nothing changes. That's a form of reflection, you know? I would say too for teachers or coaches, we got to be able to say use four statements. We have to be able to say I was wrong, I'm sorry, I don't know. I need help, right? If if we can't do that in the service of our athletes and our learners, then yeah, we need to stop. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it, though.
0: I, it was it was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time and listening to Elise's Point Conversation Edition. Thank you again, Maureen, for always teaching me. I always take something away from our conversations. Did you enjoy the conversation? Please subscribe or follow me on any of the major streaming platforms. Please rate on Apple Podcasts or write a review. I love hearing from you and the ratings and reviews do help independent podcasters like myself. Music by Atch. If you're interested in what I do, mental performance consulting, research karate stuff, and more, please check out my website embodiedmentalperformance.com or email me at embodiedmentalperformance at gmail.com.